Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. So on today's episode of the Badminton Podcast, we have Peter Gator. Now, if you don't know his name, you're either listening to the wrong podcast or you're new to badminton. So for those who don't know him, Peter is a former Danish professional badminton player and he's one of the four kings of badminton, Lin Dan, Lee Chong Wei and Tolfik Hidayat. He is a five-time winner of the European Championships and the 99 All-England Champion. Of course, he's won numerous other international titles, but if we went through them all today, we'd run out of time to actually talk to the man himself. Now, as you'd expect of one of the most successful badminton players of all time, he has the highest world ranking of number one in the world and is well known for his really smooth footwork and really creative deceptive shots, which probably almost all badminton players today would have had a go of replicating his shots at some point in time. Now, he devotes his time now to bringing up the next generation of talented players through the Yonex Peter Gatter Academy, both offline and more recently online. Being in the comfort zone, for me, it's not going to take you somewhere unexpected or it's not going to make you challenge life. It's not going to make you improve or kind of set a higher standard in your life. You need to go out of your comfort zone in order to do special things. And if that's a goal of yours, and I'm not saying it has to be because we are very different. So I also end up in situations talking to players and I say, if you don't feel for this, maybe do something else in life. You know, going somewhere with sports on high level, it should never be because of somebody or because you feel you have to do that. Then the desire, the motivation, it will be limited. The desire, it needs to come from within and it needs to come from a desire to challenge yourself, to improve, to work with yourself through wins, through losses, through ups and downs. Going along with pushing, going along with being close to your limit on the mental side, the physical side, it's uncomfortable. But the thing about the uncomfortable is that there is so much to learn from that. There is so much of life in that, that I'm trying to inspire people to go closer to that. Peter, welcome onto the Badminton Podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for the really nice uh, nice words, the nice introduction. Much appreciated. Fantastic. Now, I was actually talking to an umpire. We're having our national championships currently, and his name is David Turner. And he said that in Wuhan, in, I can't remember which year, but Thomas Uber Cup, he was playing his guitar and there was a guitar there and you started playing guitar with him. Is that story <laughs> true? It could possibly be, yeah. I've played guitar for, for some years, only on beginner's level, but on occasion, and I'm quite sure if I see a guitar, it's very difficult for me not to grab one and play, depending on the scenario. But that's definitely a possible scenario, yeah. I love music, so music is a huge part of my life. And I do some on my own as well, but like I said, only on beginner's level, you know, it's just for having a bit of fun and uh, yeah. Maybe we'll stick to that before jumping onto your badminton journey, seeing as you love music so much, Peter. As far as your, just so your fans know, what is your current favorite song? And what is, I guess, your historic, like what's your favorite song when you were growing up? You know, that one song that you'd always go back to. So current and past favorite songs. Okay, let's start with the current ones. Because my kind of, how I work with music, how music is a big part of my life, meaning that it's changing all the time. And it's kind of reflecting the the kind of the mood, kind of, sparring I'm doing with the music on a daily basis and of course on special occasions as well but right now I think what I've been listening to for the last couple of days mainly in the mornings is 
an artist called Father John Misty, and he just released a new album. And it's got kind of uh, influenced by a lot of different things, you know, pop rock culture, but also jazz, some jazzy things and experimental things. And I, I really like that. He's really a, a popular figure in the kind of folk rock scene at the moment. Aside from that, what I'm listening to right now, it, it's a mix of, it's a lot of indie music, a lot of a bit under the surface things. It could be pop rock, it could be folk rock, it could be indie. And there is some jazz things going on as well. So these are the current ones. When you ask me to go back in time, it's impossible for me because I could mention like 50 records that would probably reflect different parts of my life. And uh, I've had different periods where I was listening to different kinds of music. And if I have to mention some, you know, it's Pink Floyd, it's uh, Led Zeppelin, it's The Doors, it's uh, Nick Drake, it's some of these artists, Bob Dylan for sure. You know, they will keep reoccurring also at present time. So that's a short version of my relationship to music. Yeah, well, a wide array of music there, but I'll, I haven't heard of Father John Misty, so I'll have to check it out after this podcast <laughs> and see what it's like. <laughs> now, Peter, of course, a lot of us know about your badminton history and what you've been able to achieve, but we haven't often heard about where your grassroots came from, so where you started. So we, we always love to talk about how you got started in badminton first, how old were you, and what was it like? Actually, I grew up in a very small city called Tjernrup, and that's the kind of outskirts of Jutland. Uh, you know, uh, Denmark is kind of divided into three parts, and uh, the Jutland part, I was growing up on the countryside. Very small city, 3,000 people. And very early age, I was already starting to be kind of engaged and interested in every, you know, in sports, everything with a ball. It could be kind of table tennis, football, uh, whatever. And especially football caught my attention quite early. And I started playing on the local team when I was four years old. And from that point, everything with the ball was kind of in of interest for me. <laughs> and I was watching, kind of getting inspiration from a lot of places. And then badminton was one of them. My parents, they played at the local club on amateur level, but they brought me to the stadium or to the local hall. And I was kind of watching in the back for one hour. I was just hoping that they would play a bit with me for like 10 minutes or something. And I could easily wait for one hour. And then they played with me 10 minutes and I was the happiest kid in the world. So I started, I started badminton when I was six. And at that time in this small city, it was not like we had, like today you will have like 20, 25 different sports you can choose from. Uh, here it was only like football, badminton, handball, swimming. That's it. So you had to choose. If you were into sports, you kind of choose one for the summertime, one for the wintertime. And that's how it a bit started for me. And um, I was crazy about sports. And then, you know, later started to whatever I could watch on television were of sports or football. Or I watched every bit of it. And I started to go into a kind of mode as well, where because it was a very small city and not that many. Of course, I had friends playing, but I was also really good at spending time on my own, you know, just with uh, football, trying to juggle, trying to copy moves that I saw on television. Uh, started to be a big fan of Michael Laudrup, you possibly know as one of the Denmark's best footballers of, of all time. And I took a lot of inspiration in how he did things, he, the kind of combination of being aggressive. And so I kind of took a lot of inspiration from different sports, also tennis. And at that point, I started, I think somebody gave me a table tennis bat, but it was not like a table, real table tennis bat. It was like made of plastic and a softball, not like a tennis softball, but like a table tennis softball. And I started kind of creating my own game with that. And of course, I played badminton. So the way you play tennis outside against the wall, I started to play badminton against the wall in my room. That kind of developed through a phase, I think, from when I was about six years old until I was 10, 11 years old. And for these years, I, I kept playing different kind of games, developing these games, imagining to be different kind of players. Like, okay, I was uh, young, young. I was very offensive. Uh, if I was more than first, I was very defensive. So I think that was an example of my approach to sports. And uh, at the same time, I also got acquainted to playing tennis as well, basketball as well. Actually, also at some point into ninjutsu, I think. <laughs> so that was a kind of, you know, martial arts a little bit. 
So I got into a lot of different things, but sport, uh, football and badminton was the main sports, and that's what I wanted to do. When I was 13 years old, my dad got a job in another part of Denmark, and the family had to move, move along. And that was kind of a natural time for me to say, okay, you have to make a choice because I was spending so much time on both football and badminton. And because of different reasons, I think mainly because of the fact that I like to be on the badminton court and kind of have the responsibility myself, meaning that I could affect, you know, the win or the loss that was in my hand. Being part of a team, you know, I was relying on, I was relying on other people to perform well and uh, it made me frustrated. At that time, what happened was when I made the choice, of course, I don't regret my choice, but I missed being part of the team almost ever since. So when I made the choice, and of course, everybody, like you know, I went the badminton way, but I've always since then enjoyed to be part of team events in badminton, like Thomas Cup or Sudirman Cup, because then it's, it's kind of me going back to being part of a team, because that's the way I was raised with football. So that's kind of the short story of my beginning with sports, beginning with badminton. Yeah, I can imagine the team camaraderie at these team events for badminton can really bring back some of those memories or, or a bit nostalgic to what it was like when you were playing football. Of course, here in, in Australia, we call that soccer, but I know the rest of the world, we call that football. But yeah, I guess going back to when you're six years old on the outskirts of Jutland, I like how you like sidestep swimming. You said a few sports and then you said swimming and then you just completely ignored swimming and you just talked about other ball-related sports. So I can imagine you're not, not much of a fan of swimming. So I guess you're nodding your head there as well. You're totally right about that. And it's not that nothing wrong with swimming. And I was in the school, we did some swimming as well, but it kind of stuck with me, actually. You know, everything with the ball, I, I feel at home and that's my element. And swimming and, and the water is <laughs> it's definitely not my favorite element, that's for sure. And I think the listeners can probably hear from the way that you describe all the sports that you've interacted with. It kind of it helps us understand your creative flair on the badminton court as well. Just the way that you want to imitate and attempt to be all these different types of players across these various different sports. So it's really cool to hear that. So Peter, thanks for sharing that. Now, when you get to 13 years old and you have to choose between badminton and football, of course, when you chose to go down the badminton pathway, what did that look like for you? The journey itself from selecting badminton as the prime sport that you're going to put your, all your energy into to the point where you know, you're starting to become successful. What are some of those, I guess, those key barriers and challenges that you had to overcome? Take us on a journey there, Peter. I think at that time, no matter if I had chosen football or badminton or something else for that matter, I was very determined, very focused that I wanted sports to be my future occupation. Of course, I was also focused on school and I was quite good in, in school, but actually none of these things, you know, I might have had a few dreams about being a journalist in some way. I think at that time, a sports journalist, because I was so much into sports. But aside from that, everything in me, everything in my mind was focused on, I wanted at some point in my life to be able to live off my sport. And then it kind of developed and it was badminton. It could have been football. It could have been tennis. So I was very determined on that and nothing could influence that. You know, anybody's told me once I choose to go the badminton way and, if, you know, if I said I want to be the best in the world and they would say, yeah, that's right, Peter, you're a bit crazy. Or I was a bit lucky that I saw kind of signs that, okay, this road that I've taken, it's probably a good one because then you became a national champion. Then you're close to being a European champion, etc. It's not like everything just went smoothly, not at all. And I certainly had to fight for things, but I also had a kind of, I could see past signs along the way that, okay, this was, you know, good things were happening. I had some prospect, I had some potential in this. And that, of course, that kind of helps you saying, okay, this is how far you, you know, this is the way you want to go. The challenges that I had along the way was probably the fact that you more and more, you kind of go out of the normal life. So being part of school, being good in school, that was quite an important thing for me. And as time went by, I had to make choices because I was traveling more and more and I wanted to practice more and more. So I had to make choices that was going away from the school, away from making that a priority. And that was a bit difficult for my parents. And they kind of said, okay, now you can go a bit easy on that subject. And one year after, it was another subject. <laughs> 
it was only going one way, this part. And maybe a little bit with the social life as well, because at that time, you're growing up being between 13, 14, 15 years old, the social parts and the school and et cetera, it's quite an important part of a young human being's uh, life. And I was starting to make choices here saying, no, I'm not going to go to that party. Or I'm not going to go to this. Uh, it's not possible for me because I want to practice. And I think that became more and more clear. At that time, I was at the National Center. We had two National Centers at that time. The one was in Brunby, where the National Center is now, and another one in Aarhus, which is the second largest city in Denmark and in Jutland. In the National Center in Aarhus, we had players like Camilla Martin, uh, Jonas Rasmussen, Kenneth Jonasson, just to name a few, and myself, meaning that this National Center was a really, really strong one with some of the best players that we have seen for generations in Denmark. And I was slowly being a part of that. Michael Kelsen, coach who you might know, he's been quite a familiar coach on the world scene for many years. And he was the coach at that time and uh, very ambitious. And I was also very ambitious. So we kind of went on that journey together and we kind of pushed the limit. It was actually the way it was when I was joining this national center when I was 14, 15 years old. Even though we had older players, also Yves Felix, former All-England champion, and some of the other players being part of the national team, they were looking at me and saying, okay, Peter, take it easy. This is way too much of focus. This is, this is too crazy. There is other things in life than badminton. And for me, there weren't anything. This was the way I wanted to go. And I could spend hours working on one simple stroke or one part of the game, watching videos when I was home. There wasn't any ending of how much time or focus I wanted to spend on this. And I think that was a huge part of my development at that time. And then I have to add something that I often forget when I talk about these things, is that at the same time, I had a very, very strong culture, especially in the club, the club that I was a part of. There was Hoibia Badminton Club. Actually, Michael Kilsen is the coach today in Hoibia Badminton Club, and it's one of the best clubs in Denmark at this time. And at that time, it was also one of the biggest clubs. And it had like a huge, how can you say, portfolio of players, former players, young players, very talented players, some of the best in the world. And at the same time, really talented senior players. That was actually, they were playing a bit for fun on a national level, but they were still quite a high level. Today, you will name these players really high level. And that created a kind of environment around me that I had to fight almost at every practice. I had to fight older players, different styles of players, bit crazy players. They were quite tough on me when we had matches doing a weekly practice and so on. It was like it could be a final in a big tournament. That's the way we behaved. But I loved it. I was crazy about it. And at the same time, we had a very strong social culture around it, meaning that people were really nice to each other outside the court and uh, doing a lot of social stuff. And I could interact with that because that was along with badminton. So everybody had an understanding. Okay, Peter is, is very serious. You know, he's, he's, he might take part, but the most important thing for him is not to party all night, but it might be to take part in some way and then he wants to be ready for practice the, the next day. So that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. And looking back, I have to say, comparing to the environments today as well, in the Copenhagen area as well in Jutland and other parts in Denmark, this was definitely unique. And it made a huge impact on why I became the, the player and my relationship to badminton, to badminton culture. It, it made a huge impact on that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that we can see that in what you've been able to achieve in terms of your dedication and enthusiasm for the sport. Now, we often ask about who has influenced you to a great deal. And it sounds like all of the, the players, the club, the people that you're around really helped build you to be the badminton player you were and you thrived under the pressure, you thrived under the competition and that that striving for excellence. But would you say, was there anyone else, you sound like you were very self-driven and you knew what you wanted, but was there a guiding light, a coach, a father, or someone that helped you when you were a little bit confused or when it was getting a bit too much for you? Well, honestly, I can't name a single person. I cannot single one out. It would be a lineup of a lot of coaches a lineup of 15 coaches, possibly very different coaches, different personalities, all having their impact on me. Maybe that's one of my biggest assets in my career, you know, is to take the best things from each one of them and kind of learn from that, be motivated by that, inspired by that. And that goes for coaches and that also goes for other players as well. And that also goes for idols like looking up to Morden Frost or Paul Eric Larson or 
and at the same time having huge inspiration in Asian players like Heriento Abe, Sao Jianhua, Yang Yang. Certainly, I looked into copying these players. I didn't want to play like most of the European players played at that time. I wanted to <laughs> to copy some of the Asian style because I found that to be aggressive, very aggressive, very entertaining, kind of taking the game to your control. And I really loved that. And I tried to copy that in every way I could, but also copying other elements from European players like outside court. Or, it was a mix of everything. And uh, of course, in the early years, you are dependent that you meet people in the clubs like coaches. And I could name a few in the clubs that I grew in, the first club, the second club, and in Hoibia as well. There's also, I don't know how to call that, but it's kind of team managers. It could be the chairman of the clubs. It could be, you know, all of these on a voluntary basis, they are putting in a huge effort to make the best possible surroundings for you. Of course, they can see that you are a young, talented player, but in the end, they are also putting up a scenario for you that you're able to develop in. And uh, I have to appreciate that a lot looking back. I don't think I've at any point, nobody kind of had to. Of course, they tried to push me, but they didn't have to. It was more a question of holding back, actually, in in some parts of my my career. And I was in search of people who wanted to push me. It wasn't that easy all the time to find people that were able to go on all the way out of that line, you know. (laughs) But that's been a big part of my career as well. Yeah, definitely. And I guess from that perspective, you've really come to appreciate all the different elements of coaching, which which is what we discussed on the podcast quite a lot. A lot of the time, people think a coach is just really about, okay, teach you technique or teach you tactical or teach you certain things. But then the different perspective of all the different coaches, it just builds all of the elements of you as a player. And as a player, when you get on court, you it's not just the technical, it's not just the technical, it's who you are as a person and deep down and, and how you can act and play on court. It comes from a whole range of things, not just being able to hit in a certain way. So it sounds like, yeah, very self-driven. You had to search for a coach that had to push you because you're on that limit of always pushing, maybe people saying pushing too much. But if you were to look back at your career now, and obviously you've had a very successful career, which I'm sure you're extremely proud of, but if there was something that you would do differently in your career, then now that you could look back and inspect it, would there be something you would choose to do differently? I think first of all, because of course it's not the first time that I had this kind of question, but I'm not a guy looking back and kind of regretting things. So kind of saying I should have done it that way or because I respect a lot that the kind of pattern, the the path that I choose, it kind of made me as a person. I don't believe that you can always, some things will also happen, you know, without of your reach, without uh, your control. I think looking back, I think with the kind of focus that I had, which was <laughs> a bit extreme in, in many ways, I think it would have been, it's always easy to look back and say, okay, it could have been nice if, if somebody kind of said to me, hey, Peter, hey, take it a bit easy. You know, badminton is not that important. It's not about life or death. But I would have looked at them and say, what are you talking about? Of course, it's life and death. I was also driven a lot by the energy and the tension and the life energy in, in being dismotivated by something always striving to be better, always trying to add a few percent on this part, add a few percent on this part. And I never felt like somebody was pushing me to do something that I didn't enjoy. Never. I enjoyed every morning going to in Brunbury at the National Center. I went to practice the same place for 18 years every morning. And I never felt like, why am I going? You know, If I was in the car on the way and I was saying, why on earth am I doing this? What is the purpose? Yes. Of course, there has been difficult moments after big losses, after difficult times. It could be on the private side. It could be on the badminton side. Struggles that you have to overcome. But actually, these struggles, these ups and downs, they become a big part of your life and your life pattern. For me, that's life. You know, you need to handle ups and downs. You need to handle struggles along the way. And the way you handle these is defines a lot about how you are as a person. And it's easy to look back and then say, oh, you should have been having a more relaxed perspective on how to win or lose in badminton or how to... Of course, yes, it could be. I almost went, I think I lost one match to any European player in 11 years. So one match on competitive level to any European player in about 11 years, you know, that's, it's difficult to beat that one, I think. 
And it's difficult to look back and say you should have done better on some parts. But yes, coming into some of the big occasions like Olympics or like World Championships, my demands for myself, my uh, the kind of bar I put for myself, it was so high that there wasn't any room for failure on this. And that is, of course, one of the things that I, I had been able, but I don't believe that I would have done it myself. Somebody would have had to come in and then put the bar lower for me and saying, hey, Peter, you are a human being. You are allowed to make mistakes. You are allowed to have bad, uh, you know, some periods where you're not playing the best badminton in the world. And possibly that could have relieved some pressure in some of the big moments. But honestly, I can't see looking back who would have been able to do that because it was <laughs> the most difficult task of all uh, to try and convince me about these things. But of course, and I don't know if that's the reason why you asked, but, but being a coach now, of course, I use that experience to help players today. So if I see somebody being on my level of focus, which I don't honestly see a lot of players in the same, maybe, uh, you know, the way Victor Axelsen's approach to the game, uh, Anna Santensen, it could be similar in some ways. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. Then it's about time to say, hey, remember, it's actually a game we are playing here, you know, trying to beat each another in an entertainment game. But it becomes part of your life and it becomes a big part of your identity. And um, I actually, I also like that in some way. And I, I feel that you have to accept your destiny in some ways. And okay, Maybe it meant that the pressure was a bit too much for me at some times, not allowing me any space to, how can you say, to have leaps, to failure. Yeah, that was a part of my career, definitely. But that's the way it is. That was part of my destiny. Yeah, certainly the ups and downs of the badminton journey or the professional badminton journey or any professional sport or, or things in life that there are always positive and negative scenarios, which you, you ultimately learn from in the end. But yeah, 11 years of not losing a match is quite impressive that you can't really go back and say, oh, Peter, you should have done 12 years or 13 years, right? <laughs> But I think the whole time you were talking, Peter, it just reminded me of one of those like Apple advertisements. I know you're using Apple AirPods at the moment is that I take this quote from this ad. It's like a think different ad. It's like the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. And I think it's no surprise to listeners listening to what you were saying before is that how successful you have become is because of is that sheer amount of focus. And of course, the, the environment that you were able to surround yourself with the people who are able to push you and not any specific one, but that positive culture that you're able to surround yourself in. Now, Peter, we just want to shift gears a little bit and I'm going to throw a few fast questions at you before we go into the main topic for today. But the first one is what is your favorite food before playing an important match? When you say what is then you have to remember it's many years ago. So <laughs> where I am with food today is a lot different than 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Also, 20 years ago or 25 years ago was possible. It's not like today. If you were traveling in Asia or different parts of the world, you were not able to kind of choose everything. You had to maybe choose something uh, simple. And I can't point out any single dish or anything like that, but I would say it this way that once you started the tournament and you find out, okay, this dish is, you like this one at the hotel, for example, you're going to stick to that one. <laughs> and maybe that's the same dish if it's uh, at that time, it could be a spaghetti bolognese or it could be a chicken with rice. You're going to stick to that one before every match, all the way to the finish of the tournament because it makes you feel, okay, nothing is wrong with the food. It makes your stomach okay. That's kind of how you work with it. I'm a lot into foods. I'm a lot into how to optimize on these parts. But when I was playing, it was about doing the safe option, something you could trust, something that could in some way give you what you needed. 
And at the, in the end, you know, if you were going all the way to the final, you were like, I'm not saying throwing up because, but it was like eating the same food for six days in a row. It's not the best, but that's what you did. Yeah, there's security in eating the same food over and over again, isn't it? It kind of becomes a bit of a habit for you. Yeah, security is one thing, but also a bit of uh, superstitious. It's a rhythm you rely on. Yeah, and perhaps it worked the first time, so you might as well do it the second time and then it becomes a thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Cool. All right, next question. So what is your favorite racket of all time? It's very difficult because I think there's been a lot along the way but I think if I have to point out one, because it also played a big part, it, it would have been the isometric Slim 10 from Unix because it kind of, it influenced my career a lot. And at that time, I was winning a lot of the big tournaments. So, and I think for Unix, because at some point, like it is, you know, you have to change models, you have to do something. And Unix is, is a lot inspired by finding new ways to optimize on the records. And I just wanted to stay on that Slim 10 because it gave me so much of a, uh, success so they had to try and find new ways to copy that and making a new version of it and i think it was a nightmare for unix at that time but i think if i had to point out one it would be that racket i think i'm thinking maybe armatex 700 as well it could be one of them also a very good racket okay yonix slim 10 and the armatex 700 all right third and final quick question who do you enjoy playing the most out of lin dan lee chong wei and taufik your other kings <laughs> It's not fair to take one out of this line because they are amazing players. And honestly, I had so much inspiration from all of them. And this is truly honest. It's not something I just say. During my career, I actually took things from each one of them. So when I played them, I felt like, okay, I have to take this. I have to learn this shot or this movement from Lindan. I have to do this from Taufik or from Li Wei. It happens. It's a natural feeling happening along the games. When we play each other, you feel it in a special way. I think what I enjoyed the most actually playing all three of them was that, yes, you had pressure, but it was the good kind of pressure because you knew that you respected these guys so much that, yes, we are fighting for medals. Yes, we are fighting for this and this, but no matter what, this is why I've been practicing this much and putting so much into the sport is to play matches like this. So honestly, I really enjoyed playing almost every match against these guys, no matter how much the pressure. And I guess these guys and yourself kind of set the standard very much for men's singles in our era that we know of. And in the men's singles game now, I feel, and a lot of people feel that the game has changed a little bit. So while yourself, Tolfik, Lindan, Chongwei had definitely a lot of skill, power and agility, do you find that the top players now, the style that they're playing is very different. And what do you see the differences are between kind of top men's singles now compared to top men's singles when you were playing? Yeah, wow. It's not an easy question to answer because I feel that there's a lot of elements in this. I will try in the best way because I have a lot of respect, first of all, for the development of the game, for the evolution of the game, no matter the category. But of course, men's singles is what I can relate the most to. I don't know. I've No doubt that the players on the physical side, they are very, very strong today. A lot of them, they are very explosive. You can see that their movements are explosive, maybe to some degree, even more than in the past. I think the way the game is now with even more tournaments, there's also more money in the sport right now. So meaning that players can maybe make priorities in a different way, meaning that you will see players have different priorities depending on the tournament. So I think that's also part of why you see more ups and downs for some of them. I still feel, you know, when, I, when I'm watching the tournament uh, spectator right now, I want the best players to go to semifinals and final. I want the big matchup. I want the big matchup with uh, Victor and Mamota or Lisigia. And we have to admit that aside from Victor for the past years, it's, and also Mamota had a string of, I think, around two years where he was on his own level. And then, unfortunately, he had the accident and it kind of made it very difficult for him. And then Victor taking over a bit on the scene. And uh, I would like that we have Victor, Kento, Antonsen, Alicia Gia, the two, uh, Ginting, Christie. I would like them to have more continuous fights with each other. I like that. But on the other hand, it's also nice to see that the game is more open now. So you're going to have more players taking part on the top fighting for the finals, fighting for the medals. 
So that's a charming part of the game as well. I think maybe we will see more change in the scenery and it could be the way it, it's developing. Yeah, certainly. I think it has been hard with that you know, one to two year lull with the pandemic as well that has sort of made, made things a little bit different and difficult, especially without the traveling for international tournaments for a lot of these players as well to, I guess, for someone like Momoto who probably would have benefited from that consistency in the high level play. Peter, if we move on from that and talk more about, I guess, the, the future of badminton and especially your involvement with badminton itself, I'm sure a lot of the audience is aware, as Jeff highlighted in your introduction as well, of the Yonex Peter Gate Academy that you run in partnership with Yonex. So if for, for those that aren't familiar with it, it would be great to just, I guess, get a bit of a rundown on what it's all about, you know, how people can get involved. That would be good. Well, the academy actually started... I think about five years ago, when I came back from being an astronaut coach in France, I came back to Denmark and I had this feeling that I wanted to start something where I was totally free in the way that I work with players. I wanted to be free and putting on whatever aspect of the game that I want and create an everyday for myself where I was able to have a free role and also able to have a good balance in my, my private life as well. I think that was the main reason why I kind of started creating the academy. I knew that it was kind of a risk to do it because I know, of course, there's been a lot of academies in the past, but there's a lot of difference about how an academy is run in, in India or in Asia and an academy like this in Europe. And I wanted to create a place where players could come, take use of my knowledge, uh, the other coaches' knowledge, take use of, of a philosophy, of a kind of way of badminton culture to be inspired, to be motivated, to learn from that and not create a place where if you come here, you, you have to do like this or you have to do like this. Yes, there will be some frames of how my culture is. I'm not going to lie about that. I'm not going to, you know, there is some line in the culture that I do, a line in the culture when people are taking part in the sessions as well. But I don't even have to say anything. I think it's in the culture, how we do it, the approach to working with your game. And I wanted to create a place where the academy is for the individual player. It's not for me. Yes, I learned a lot that I want to pass on. The other coaches will have experience that they also want to pass on. I want to create an environment where the players are able to use each other in the best possible way. Players, they know they have to, in order to get, you also have to give. You know, you need to pass on your experience maybe to younger players. And at the same time, you're also going to get a lot of motivation, inspiration, sparring levels from other players as well, from the coaches as well. For me, it's a teamwork being part of a practice. It's always been like that. And I think I wanted to do that without having to kind of, I wanted to be totally free in doing that. And then the academy formed its own way during the years. And Yonex came in two and a half years ago, being a more active part of the academy. So the way it is now, the setup is that if you are a Yonex sponsored player, you are able to take part in, in the group sessions at the academy free of charge if you're confirmed by Yonex, if you're confirmed by me. So there is a certain level that you need to have a certain potential to be able to take part in the sessions. At the same time, it will also be possible for players not sponsored by Yonex to apply. And if the level and potential is high enough, then we will accept them towards a payment charge. And once again, it is to create an environment where people are open-minded to give and to get. It is to create an environment where the players are individually, you know, the setup is very individual. So there's a big difference on how one player coming from Sweden, where he or she is, and maybe a young Danish player, or they need different things. Maybe some is working long-term, maybe some is working short-term. So meaning that you could have a player saying, I'm working on long-term, meaning in two or three years, I want to be at a certain stage. Or you could have players coming in saying, I need to prepare for an important tournament in two months. Okay, that's what we do. So there's a huge difference on where these players are, and we need to be able to accommodate these demands. And in order to do so, I need a really good setup with coaches. I need a really good setup with all of us being free in the way to make the structure. And we are. And I didn't really know how this was going to turn out some years ago. But I feel that we've really been able to create a structure where people feel welcome when they take part in the academy and they can use us the way they want to. And it's more or less, you know, how much do the player invest 
in the academy, being part of the academy, the more the player will get from it. And there's no demand from my side saying, hey, this player is kind of, I'm not taking ownership of the player. And that is maybe the, one of the most important things for me that I, I don't want to do that. I have no interest in doing that. I'm ready to help players that wants to do something with their badminton, that wants to go as far as they can, then I'm ready. And I'm ready to do the best possible setup. So that's the, that's the short version of where the academy is now. And we've been able to accommodate so many different players of many, many different countries for the past years. And I'm really proud of, it goes beyond my expectations where we are at the current stage. And I hope we can take even further steps in the, in the coming years. Yeah, first of all, congratulations, Peter, on a great academy that you've got there after not knowing what it would turn out to be when you started. But you talked about the culture and building that culture of, say, collaboration and and helping each other and passing on all of your knowledge. And you said that you allow for some freedom, but of course, there's a line in the sand. But I was just thinking that if someone was ever going to go to the Peter Gator Academy, there's a certain benchmark of expectation as to effort and, and dedication and, and input that you would need. You wouldn't go to the Peter Gator Academy and not be 100% dedicated because it just doesn't fit in with your culture, with the name, and you wouldn't expect it to. But you also looked at venturing out into the online space. So there, there is the online universe of Peter Gather as well. How does that work in conjunction with the things that you're doing physically at the academy itself? Well, it certainly it has some kind of a connection to the academy. No doubt about that. But I think it's part of the process that I've been going through for the past years and, and feeling that how do I convey this knowledge that I have, this desire to pass on knowledge? How can I do that the best way possible? On a, a natural kind of way is, of course, the academy, where I'm physically close to the players and able to do that on a daily basis. But with everything going on on, on social media, on YouTube channels, whatever online coaching scenarios that you can find in the, in the sporting universe, I've been trying and kind of searching for a way to say, okay, is this a platform or is this a way where I feel comfortable sharing my knowledge? So it has been a process trying to, how do I want to use social media? How do I want to use, because I'm not, I didn't grow up with this the way that maybe you guys did, or <laughs> maybe players uh, much younger than, uh, you know, the new generation, you know, they have a different relationship towards these things. And it was a process for me looking at it and saying, okay, I still feel I have a lot I want to pass on, but I'm not just going to open up like it's not part of how I do things. So I needed to create a, a more focused space, a more in-depth place, platform where I could do this. And I think that these two items are going to work more and more closely together because actually I'm learning on every day with the Academy. And why shouldn't I pass this experience on to fans, to players, to coaches all around the world. I just need the right kind of tool to do it. And this is still a process and we are a lot into it right now and things are happening every day and we are learning about, you know, how can we do this the best way? And I think in maybe in one year, we're going to be a place where it all makes a lot more sense for me and hopefully for the members taking part and for the fans also on social media, et cetera, for the followers. There is definitely a connection and it's, it's about passing on my philosophy, of course, the way I see the game. But actually, it's also about sharing and it's about learning from each other. That I think in badminton, we have to be even more open in the way we approach different ideas, different visions. I think we are still at the early stages of this. We have to admit that we are, in many ways, an old school sport compared to tennis, golf, some of these, the American sports as well. So the way of sharing, the way of having available knowledge is limited, I think. And there's nothing more that I want than trying to, you know, motivate, trying to inspire people to share more, trying to inspire people to look at the game and see, you know, how can we take the game to next step, to next level? And that's what I'm trying to do here. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. It does make sense. And it's great to see you play your part in, in giving back to badminton, which of course has given you so much. And of course, you've given to badminton a lot as well. And being able to create a space where, as you said, the players, fans, coaches, they can all share their knowledge and improve the sport as a whole. So yeah, it's really great to see that you were able to also share your knowledge and experience and passion and of course, love for the game. And we can hear that throughout this entire podcast, you know, how much you love the sport. And I know it's so hard to define love, right? I'm not going to make this about a relationship. Don't worry, Peter. I want to know though, 
Why do you love badminton so much? I think it's because badminton is complicated. It's complex. It contains so many areas where you have to master things. It's not only a physical distance or you have to perform or it's not limited in any way. You have to master the physical, the tactical, the technical. It's so complex here. And I love all these different parts. I think that it's a lifestyle. It's a journey with life. And of course, you can copy these into life in general as well. But often I ask myself the question also along the way for, since I quit the game nine years ago in 2012 or more than nine years ago, 10 years ago. I asked the question many times, you know, how should I be involved with badminton? Should I do something completely different? And I have a lot of passion for other things as well, you know, other parts of life, other elements of life as well. But I have to admit that I, I get back to the fact that I just love this game so much because it contains so many parts of what I like about life. I like the challenges about how to overcome big wins, big losses, difficult challenges, how to work with yourself on limits, both on the physical and the mental side. And that combination of the physical and the mental side, I just love that. I can feel myself when I'm at these limits. As a coach, it's different, but I'm also trying to go there. And I think my players can feel that, that I, in no way I'm going to hold back or go the easy way or make the easy choice because that's the most convenient. I will always try to push the limit and saying, okay, if that's where you are as a player, I'm going with you. I'm all the way with you. I'm not going to hold back. So that's kind of the dedication to what you're doing in all these different parts and elements that the game contains. I love that. Definitely a really good reason, strong reason why we love the sport, that it's just not just a 100-meter sprint. Although the 100-meters best sprinters in the world are amazing athletes, and there is a lot of psychology behind it, but we love the skill, everything involved with badminton. So, Peter, we have been talking for a little while now, and we really do appreciate your time. There's just one more question I've got for you, and this is probably something that is for the audience directly because we know that you have so much wisdom to offer everyone in so many aspects of the game. But going back to your drive and that mindset you have of doing things differently or really pushing that boundary and expecting higher things of yourself, if you were going to say just one piece of advice or anything you've learned along the way to a player who's maybe struggling with some motivation or is not sure what they want to achieve or why they want to achieve it, would you tell them anything in particular to get the drive up, to get the motivation up, or to help them realize they do have that drive or motivation? It's not easy to point out one single element that you can just say a magic word and then you're going to find the inspiration or you're going to find the reason why you do this. Where I end up with a lot of players in recent years is I talk a lot about balance. I talk a lot about if a player is in front of you and saying, hey, what is it you want with badminton? What is it you want to achieve here? And if they, are, if they are talking about being number one in Europe or number one in the world, they have to know that it comes along with, you know, there is some demands. You're never going to go there. Living a normal life, living an easy life, a comfort life, it's not possible. So if we talk about push, you know, going on high level, you need to push yourself. And you need to set the bar a lot higher than you might think. Going along with pushing, going along with being close to your limit on the mental side, the physical side, it's uncomfortable. But the thing about the uncomfortable is that there is so much to learn from that. There is so much of life in that, that I'm trying to inspire people to go closer to that. Being in the comfort zone, for me, it's not going to take you somewhere unexpected or it's not going to make you challenge life. It's not going to make you improve or kind of set a higher standard in your life. You need to go out of your comfort zone in order to do special things. And if that's a goal of yours, and I'm not saying it has to be because we are very different. So I also end up in situations talking to players and I say, if you don't feel for this, maybe do something else in life. You know, going somewhere with sports on high level, it should never be because of somebody or because you feel you have to do that. Then the desire, the motivation, it will be limited. The desire, it needs to come from within and it needs to come from a desire to challenge yourself, to improve, to work with yourself through wins, through losses, through ups and downs. When I look at players today and, and I see when I put them in difficult situations where things are against them and they have to kind of find ways to solve this problem or solve this challenge, I want to see fire. I'm looking for the fire in their eyes. I'm looking for this special 
the special spark in their eyes. And honestly, it's quite obvious, you know, when it happens to some players and I put them in these situations, you can just see their eyes are like this and they might end up not handling the challenge or losing or whatever. It doesn't matter because if they have this desire to handle a challenge, a difficult challenge, wow, they have potential here because going far and going on high level in badminton, it will demand you to handle difficult challenges all the time on court alone. So that's a big part of how I look at it. And then it's our job as coaches to kind of motivate them and put these players into situations where they are able to find tools and to create tools to handle these. And I think that's my most important job as a coach. And yes, I cannot give a simple advice to any player, like say, but the willingness, the kind of curiosity to search and learn about things when things are difficult. That is one of the key elements to improving, to setting new standards for yourself, to work with your limits. And that's a lot about life for me. I guess to summarize, it's about sort of understanding and identifying the desire that you have for a particular goal in life and being uncomfortable and being okay with being uncomfortable when you're setting the bar high. So remember to take that with you guys, listeners. So Peter, we are wrapping up now. And as far as this conversation goes, we've had a great time. We hope you enjoyed our conversation as well. For the fans out there, the listeners out there, if you do want to get in touch with Peter, make sure to check out petergator.com. But Peter, is there any other way that fans or players can get in touch with you other than petergator.com? petergator.com is definitely the best way at the moment on the PG official on Instagram or on the Facebook fan page it's our options to get a hold of me or to make contact for me. I can't guarantee that I'm able to reply immediately, but most of the messages, I will see them and uh, I will reply personally. So if you are a bit patient, then I'll do my best to get in touch with you. Fantastic, Peter. So from myself and Henry and all the listeners out there, we just want to say thank you once again for coming on to the Badminton Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've learned a lot and we are all very inspired to go and lift those expectations to raise that bar. So really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, Be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast, and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.